Well, if you will, go ahead and start turning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I uh, had a number of questions posed to me last week. began working on that as a topic to uh, present in a sermon. Uh, but then I had some other questions uh, given to me by another individual. Uh, and so I, I, I spoke on that. But we're going to come back to the original questions I was, I was asked. And let me just go ahead and start off by reading a few of the questions I was asked. And then I'll give you the title of our sermon or Bible study tonight. One of the questions that was asked was, what is actually considered a faithful congregation? Uh, then followed up by, what determines a faithful congregation according to the Scriptures? Then I was asked, is a congregation faithful just because they adhere to the five acts of worship which are described in the Bible? Then I was asked, is a church considered faithful if there are a number of solid families but let's say a portion of the church, such as 70 or 75% or what have you, what if they're lukewarm? Is the church still considered faithful? And then I was asked, do most people really understand that being truly faithful to God is a whole lot more than just showing up on Sunday morning for worship and Wednesday for Bible study? Well, we're going to try to answer that, and we're going to do that by looking at the credentials of faithfulness, both for congregations and for individuals. Now, most of us know what, uh, what we're talking about when we begin to talk about credentials. I think the majority of adults have a driver's license. Uh, and if somebody were to ask you for credentials to prove who you are, you would simply be able to pull out a driver's license. Well, when you begin to talk about the church, the church also has credentials. Just because a congregation is faithful doesn't mean that all the members of that congregation are faithful or uh, their credentials might be lacking. And just because a congregation consists of a faithful majority doesn't even mean that that congregation uh, couldn't go into error or couldn't become unfaithful. Now, certainly that's the goal for each congregation. The goal is for the congregation to be faithful and for all individuals that make up that congregation to be faithful. That's the goal. But I think all of us, as we begin to get into this and begin to answer some questions, I think most of us would know, uh, without me even presenting a lesson, that there are faithful congregations that have unfaithful members. Uh, and you might even find for a time, and we'll talk about this, that there may be some faithful members who for a time are attending a congregation which is becoming unfaithful. I don't think you'd find them worshiping there after the church had become faithful, but we do have an example, and we'll look at that. So go on over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 15. Uh, and and this, is, this is something necessarily that each of us as Christians should be worried about. Jesus spent time talking about this, and it's still occurring. Notice how He has warned us. And again, let's go back to the fact churches need to be faithful. We want the individuals to be faithful, and so we need to adhere to the warnings. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15. We'll read down to verse 23. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, to every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. 
A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Let me pause for just a second. Let's, let's apply this to today. Certainly there are congregations out there that do not teach truth. And we'll give some verses here in a little bit. But that idea that you could take a congregation that teaches error and think that they could actually be doing good, uh, it's completely illogical. Jesus is making it very clear here that a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and an evil tree doesn't bring forth good fruit. And so we need to understand that when we begin to talk about congregations and individuals. Have you ever heard of people saying that they were going to do something, and even though it was wrong, the, the, the intent behind it was good and it was going to create good? That can never be the case. He goes on, verse 19. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That goes back to those who are sinning, but might even say that they're doing it for good. Jesus is making it very clear here. There are people uh, who will be calling him Lord, Lord. They're not going to enter, enter into the kingdom of heaven. The ones that will are the ones that do the will of the Father, which is in heaven. He goes on, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity or sin. You can have individuals claiming to be followers of Christ, involved in sin, even saying they've done these things on the behalf of Christ. And he says, I'm going to tell you, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We have to start off with that because sometimes false religion actually appears as the truth. I have spoken to a number of people who, who were trying to teach on biblical doctrines, and they were teaching error. And as you begin to ask questions, they couldn't see that what they were teaching was false, and they didn't even realize it themselves. And here's the thing. When people are oftentimes being taught by someone else who seems more knowledgeable, they can very easily be deceived. Again, I'm going to go back to Matthew 7:15. He said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. Why are they coming in sheep's clothing? Well, they're trying to deceive by false appearance. Notice he says, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They're actually wolves, but they're using this false appearance to deceive by appearing in sheep's clothing here. I want you to go over to 2 Corinthians 11:13 13 through 15. Jesus is not the only one to ever tell us to beware of false prophets or apostles. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 13, we'll read down to verse 15. Notice what Paul tells the church in Corinth. And again, this wasn't the only congregation dealing with that. He tells the church in Corinth, For such are false prophets, or such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming, in, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I saw someone post, he was actually a Christian, I saw someone this week post uh, a very prominent uh, preacher 
I'll just describe him as one who teaches uh, false doctrine. He teaches uh, faith-only salvation. He teaches that you can't fall away. He teaches um, once you're saved by grace, you're going to continue to make it to heaven. But anyways, uh, there are people who would call that man good. M many people think that he is a, a very good person. He may be a very nice person, but what he's doing is not certainly good. He's deceiving people even though he may not himself know it. And that's why we were told we need to test the spirits, right? We can't merely accept their word. Listen to 1 John 4.1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, I know for a fact that I can believe the Holy Spirit, right? I can believe the Holy Spirit's inspired word, but I can't always believe man's spirit. Now, you may be listening to me and you say, I'm not really quite sure if I know what you're talking about when you talk about man's spirit. How many of you have ever heard someone say that guy really is mean-spirited, right? He is really, uh, he is evil-spirited, right? He's, what you're getting the impression of when someone uses that about an individual is, is when you call them mean-spirited, right, they're full of hatred. They're divisive. When you call them uh, when you call them evil-spirited or mean-spirited, you're trying to describe the inner spirit of that person, who they are, right? Well, sometimes people simply are evil-spirited. Sometimes they are mean-spirited. Sometimes they do have the spirit of deceit within themselves. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes they simply just don't know. They themselves have been deceived, and they may even be trying to do right, uh, but they're sincerely mistaken. And some may say, well, you're spending an awful lot of time focusing on truth and error as we talk about credentials of faithfulness. I mean, is, it, is that really even all that important? Well, Jesus says that it is. You have to know the truth to be free. In John 8, 32, Jesus says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's one of the credentials we're going to be looking for as we begin to talk about congregations and we begin to talk about individuals. Do they know the truth? Are they living the truth? Now, you may say, <clears throat> is it really, again, all that important? Well, I'm required to question everything regarding truth. Part of that is, is because I cannot condone or encourage or practice anything outside the doctrine of Christ. I want you to listen to 2 John 1. I'm going to read from verses 9 through 11. John, by inspiration, writes, Whosoever transgresseth, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. That's going to apply to both congregations as a whole and also individuals. He goes on, He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Again, that will, that will carry over to both the congregation and the individual. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. I had somebody ask a question this week, so let me mention it this way as we talk about Godspeed. It's, it's, it's giving the impression that you condone what somebody else is doing. And somebody had asked the question about worshiping with a different religious group, specifically one which is <clears throat> clearly, uh, clearly different than what we teach, what we believe. Uh, and let me say this in offering Godspeed. I would never go worship at the Catholic Church. 
I mean, I simply know that what they teach is wrong. I was raised a Catholic, and uh, I know that what they taught and the, what I was taught does not line up with the Scriptures. I also would not uh, attend a Baptist church or a community church. Uh, I have attended uh, a community church, and uh, much of what they believed and taught was taught on what you would find in a Baptist church. They taught uh, faith only salvation. They taught the sinner's prayer. They taught that baptism wasn't required. <clears throat> I would never go to one of those places uh, because I want to give the, con the impression that I condone what they teach or what they do. Also, their worship's not accurate. It's not, it's not in alignment with the Scriptures. So again, I'm not going to give God speed or the impression that I condone that type of behavior. And if someone were to ask me why I wouldn't go, I would clearly tell them. We need to be checking both individuals and congregations' credentials before we join ourselves either to a congregation or to that individual, right? We're not to be yoked to unbelievers. So here's the question as we continue to move on and we look at some of the questions that were posed to me. Uh, and I hope that I can try to answer all of them or at least give an understanding in how to deal with some of the questions. How exactly do we check a church's credentials? I mean, how can we know that, that they are indeed faithful? Well, let me start off by saying this. First off, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some serious study on behalf of an individual to ever know if a congregation is indeed faithful. You're not going to know that about any local congregation unless you really begin to check into the congregation. So let's start off with just the basics, and I know I have addressed this a number of times, so this will be especially beneficial to someone who is not a member of the Church of Christ, but it's still going to be beneficial to those who are Christians. How do we check the credentials for a congregation? Well, first, let's check beyond the name and the fact that they claim that they are Christians. There are a lot of churches out there that have the, the name Church of Christ above the door. Uh, and let me just say this. So before I was a Christian, I attended a church um, I won't tell you their name, but they listed their name uh, and they said they were the Church of Christ. I happened to attend there. I didn't know anything about the Church of Christ or what they taught. Uh, they weren't really uh, the Church of Christ. They were actually originally a split off from the Church of Christ uh, about a hundred years ago. They became a Christian church or the Disciples of Christ. Uh, and later, shortly after I left, they even changed their name again to a community church. So why do I bring that up? Just because they've got the name Church of Christ on the door doesn't mean that they are a Church of Christ or that they are Christ's church. And it doesn't mean that they're not some type of a denominational group or, uh, which they were, they adhered to the disciples, the, uh, the Christian church, the disciples of Christ. And it doesn't mean that they're not even going to fully go into something else, which would be as they did the community church, right? You've also got a lot of buildings out there with other names on them. You need to check beyond whatever that name is. Okay? Here's a good example. When we go back to the Old Testament, we can look at Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a Jew. Now, I bring that up because when we look at the Jews, we know for a fact that the Jews were told how to worship, where to worship, when to worship. They specifically were to worship there at the temple in Jerusalem. Their priests were supposed to be from the Levitical tribe. They were told to worship and live according to the Old Testament. Uh, and this was so important that they were actually warned not to change anything uh, in regards to their Old Testament scriptures. And however, in 1 Kings 12, 25-33, we begin to read about the first king 
of the northern kingdom of Israel, and that's Jeroboam. Uh, he was a Jew, and he even claimed to be offering the worship that God had ordained. But here's the question, was he? If you went back and actually checked his credentials, was he adhering to the ways that the Jews were supposed to worship? Right? Well, very clearly he was not. I mean, what, we would, what a Jew should have been asking about Jeroboam is exactly what we should be asking about either a congregation that we want to attend, that we do attend, or an individual within the congregation. What we need to ask is, are they in alignment with the Scriptures? Regarding Jeroboam, no. The answer, the answer was no. He wasn't in alignment as a Jew. He wasn't worshiping where, when, or how he was supposed to be worshiping. As a matter of fact, the worship that Jeroboam was authorizing didn't resemble anything like the, New, the Old Testament worship that they had been told to follow. And so if you wanted to be a faithful Jew, you wouldn't have wanted anything to do with Jeroboam. And you wouldn't have wanted anything to do with the worship that Jeroboam was authorizing. Same thing for those who want to be a faithful Christian today. right? If you want to be a faithful Christian, you want to be a part of the church that's in alignment with the Scriptures, and you want to be surrounded by individuals that are living faithful to those Scriptures. And so... We need to then ask the question, well, what about the, local, what about the local congregation and the Christians that are within it? Well, you need to check beyond just the individual's claim. Just as you check beyond the church's claim, you need to check beyond an individual's claim. I know a lot of people that will tell me they are Christians. And then I begin to talk to them and I find out they're, they're not Christians. They don't, even know what, they don't even know how to obey the gospel. They don't even know anything about the Lord's church. They don't even know when it was established. They don't even know anything about the commandments given to those who are members of the Lord's church. They can claim to be Christians, but that doesn't mean that in fact they are. Just like Jeroboam claiming to be a faithful Jew, he didn't look anything like a faithful Jew. And again, we have to be worried about that because we were warned of false apostles and prophets. Now you may be saying, what exactly is a false apostle? Well, that word there, apostolos, meaning one sent. And so, if you have a false apostle or a false one sent, what you have are false apostles who are not sent by God or sent by Christ. Let me talk about Ephesus for a minute. I'm going to go on over to Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to notice verse 2 here. I mentioned earlier, after giving some examples, there were a number of people who were dealing with false apostles. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, I know thy works... And thy labor, this is speaking in regards to the church at Ephesus, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. What were the people in Ephesus doing for these, claim, these people claiming to be apostles? They were checking their credentials. We have people today walking around claiming to be apostles. Right? There are credentials for someone to be an apostle right? These people didn't meet the credentials. The Christians there at Ephesus, they were doing their homework. They were, they were finding out, do they have the credentials to be an apostle? Well, the answer was no. Listen to uh, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. 13. This is the church in Corinth. <clears throat> Again, Paul says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming, it, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. We have that today. 
Uh, we have people today walking around saying that they are apostles, that they are prophets. And so we need to be checking each local congregation's claim to faithfulness. Uh, we need to be checking each Christian's claim to faithfulness. I, I mean, I don't personally know any congregation who comes right out and says, you know, uh, we, we didn't really want to make this prominently known, but yeah, we're deceiving people. I mean, that's, that's what we do here at this church. I don't know anybody that claims that or any church that claims that. I don't know any Christians or people who are not Christians but claim to be Christians walking around saying, yeah, my whole intent is to deceive people. Again, I don't know anybody that would say that. And yet, there are those who are teaching false doctrine within congregations. There are those who are individually teaching false doctrine. And you can even look at some of these churches and they, they seem like they're alive and that they're, they're thriving and they're growing. Well, let's use the example of Sardis over from Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. You can have congregations where people uh, believe that they're faithful and they're thriving and they're living, and what you find out is, is they're actually a dead congregation. And I think maybe some of us even know of congregations where they were once faithful, but now they're dead, dead in a number of ways. Sometimes we actually find congregations and individuals who are out sinning in the name of Christ. I want you to listen to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Again, we looked at this, but it's important. You need to understand some people, they're committing sin. They don't even really know it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Again, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why do we need to be checking for the congregation that we attend? Well, let me... Let me veer off for a second. For those who do not attend a church of Christ, I want you to just look at the Scriptures and ask yourself what it is that the church where you attend, what it is that they do, and see if it's in alignment with the Scriptures. Now, for those who are members of the church of Christ, much of what I'm going to talk about here for the next few minutes is not going to surprise you. You've probably heard it a number of times, uh, but I'm not going to limit ourselves to that, okay? What's the first thing I need to begin to look at when I'm looking for a faithful congregation? Well, again, we need to compare both congregations and individuals to the doctrine of Christ. I want you to listen to Revelation 22:18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. The very same thing that was told to the Jews, don't change the Old Testament, is the very same thing that is told to Christians, don't change the New Testament. You can't go add stuff, you can't go move away or remove stuff. All right? It's important for us to understand that. So let's focus first on the credentials of a congregation. Remember, somebody asked, 
how can we know if a congregation is even faithful? And what does the Scriptures really say about uh, what re what's required for a congregation to be faithful? Let's focus in on that first, and let's focus in first on what many people mistakenly believe is the only thing you need to look for. As I mentioned, these, they are required, but these are not the only things. But however, many people who are members of the churches of Christ, this is all that they look for. And that is this, is the worship found in the doctrine of Christ and limited to those items? Certainly, we're going to cover those really quickly here, and this is a good starting point. However, this only slightly narrows down whether a congregation is faithful or unfaithful. Okay, this is a good starting point. I mean, are they singing and are they singing only? Now, for those who are watching this, if you're not a member of the Church of Christ and you want to know while I'm focusing in on singing and only singing, meaning we're, we're singing a cappella, we are not using instruments, I would encourage you to go back, look on our YouTube list, find, find one of the sermons that we have dealing with the topic of singing. Let me go back to Revelation 22:18, right? Let's not add anything to our New Testament scriptures and let's not take anything away. In Ephesians 5:19, we find speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, that word is solo, it means stroking your heart to the Lord, right? The instrument of our worship is the heart. The heart is the Bible mind, right? That is the instrument we're using in worship. We are singing with our mouths. We don't need instruments within our worship because the in only instrument we need is the heart, the Bible mind. Colossians 3.16. And again, don't add to, don't take away. There's always been music, meaning uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we've always had music, and you've had different types of music. Acapella, I mean singing only. Those who are singing with instruments, and then you've had just instrumental, right? The Holy Spirit knew what words to use within the New Testament. And the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have recorded for us that our singing is to be simply singing, singing only. Acapella, that's what acapella means in the manner of the early church. Colossians 3.16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We have a command to sing. You will not find a command anywhere that says that you can sing and add instruments or that you can sing and add a, a uh, quartet, right? You don't find that anywhere. We are limited to the commands and the examples that we have. If you're one of those people that say, yeah, uh, we, can, we can add to it. I mean, you're, you're, you're just being too picky. We can add to it. Well, if we can add to it, then let's, let's change the Lord's Supper, right? Let's not just make it unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Let's also add french fries and a hamburger. Most people would say that's sacrilege. There's no way we would do that because you understand you can't just add stuff to the Scriptures, right? You understand it with the Lord's Supper. You need to also understand it when it comes to our singing, but that's one of the first things somebody looks at, right? And there are people that will be traveling, and they get on the internet, and they go, yeah, they sing a cappella. <laughs> like that makes them faithful. It's a good starting point, but that's not the end all. All right. Are they, uh, are they praying during worship? I don't know of any congregation that doesn't do this, but it is a requirement. Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, 
and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The church has always gathered to sing. They've also gathered to pray. Now, as I told you, I was, I was raised Catholic. They pray. I went to a community church. They prayed. I've been to a bunch of different types of churches. Never seen one of them that didn't pray. Uh, and that's pretty common that you should have the understanding you need to be praying during worship. So that's a good starting point. Are they singing and are they praying? Are they weekly teaching and partaking of the Lord's Supper in the assembly? Now, I could use different verses for this, but I'm just going to use Acts 20 verse 7 and knock both of these out with one verse. And upon the first day of the week, that is Sunday, it's the only day that we partake. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. When did they come together to break bread or have the Lord's Supper? On the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? That's Sunday. For anyone watching this, that means you can't have Monday night worship like they're doing at the community church by my house, right? You can't, you can't gather and partake of the Lord's Supper or worship on Monday. You can't gather on Tuesday. For clarity, you can't gather on Wednesday and worship. You can't gather on Thursday and worship. You can't gather on Friday and worship, and you can't gather on Saturday and worship. You may be saying, well, do you guys get together during the week? Yeah, we get together during the week, uh, and we have a Bible study. We pray, but we are not carrying out uh, organized worship as we find dictated to us in the Scriptures for the first day of the week. Like, we, don't, we don't gather, I'm going to cover this point in a minute, but we don't take up a collection uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. It's upon the first day of the week. Right? So, is the congregation weekly teaching? It means they're having a sermon. And you might be saying, I can't imagine a congregation would, would gather and not have a sermon on Sunday. I've seen it take place. I saw a congregation one time that gathered and they sang the entire time on Sunday for worship. They're missing some stuff. Uh, they sang, except they were singing with instruments, so that's not authorized. They did pray. They didn't have any weekly teaching. They didn't partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm sure they picked up the contribution because most congregations don't miss that. Uh, but just because a congregation is uh, weekly teaching and partaking of the Lord's Supper, that still doesn't mean they're faithful. That's a good starting point, and certainly any faithful church will be doing that, but that's not the only thing. Again, I already mentioned the contribution. Are they taking that up on the first day of the week? Uh, as we've been instructed. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, that's Sunday, interesting how that's the same day that they were gathering to worship. Right? He goes on. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now I'm going to tell you, during the COVID-19, I have seen churches asking for... Their members, because they're not meeting, to still give, right? Uh, there's a problem with that. Again, go back to Acts 20, verse 7. We are required to worship on the first day of the week. If your congregation is not worshiping, but they're still worried about getting your money, I'm just telling you there's a red flag there. There's a problem there. Uh, we have never had to send out a, a text or an email to somebody saying, hey, you know, we're not meeting right now because we've been snowed in or... We're not meeting due to the COVID-19, and so go ahead and please send your check in, right? We do that as part of our worship. And so, because we are required to worship every week, we have, required, we have worshiped every week, even during this COVID-19, 
And because we've worshipped, we then had an opportunity to give. Nobody needed to send an email out saying, hey, don't forget, don't forget to give. Let me get back to my focus. That was a side point there. What's my point as we begin to bring this up? Okay, so we, yeah, we have the five acts of worship. Uh, and a lot of people, when they're, when they're traveling, they simply go, they, they've got the five acts of worship listed there, and so they must be faithful. Just because they're involved in the five acts of worship doesn't mean that they're faithful. You may find a congregation uh, that adheres to all five acts of this, uh, but they're in no regards faithful. You may find some Baptist churches that are doing this every week. There's some Baptist churches that sing a cappella, uh, and they may be praying, and they may be weekly teaching and partaking of the Lord's Supper. They're even giving uh, uh, of their means on the first day, and yet you begin to look at what they teach, and now you've got a problem. So just because a church of Christ or another church is carrying out the five acts of worship, that does not make them faithful. It is a good starting point. But you've got to look a whole lot deeper into a congregation uh, than just checking to see whether they sing a cappella. That doesn't mean they're faithful. You've got a bunch of other things you've got to ask, and I'll touch on a few of them here before we get back to the individual. What are some of the things I probably ought to ask? Well, are the works that they're involved in found within the doctrine of Christ, and are they limited to those areas? Uh, how about evangelism? Are they involved in evangelism? We are required individually to be uh, involved in evangelism, but so are congregations. Now, they may be carrying out their congregation evangelism uh, simply in the form of the individuals. They may have, for example, a congregation may not be sending a missionary out and, and sending money to a missionary, but they may be using the individuals within the congregation to carry out their evangelism, right? They may be choosing streets within the city to hand out flyers or to door knock, right? But they may also be sending out missionaries. Listen to Philippians 4, 15 through 18. Now ye Philippians know also, and you're going to see actually both forms of, of this here. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia... No church com communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Paul's a missionary out doing work. He needs money. And they individually are helping Paul carry out evangelism. But because they are helping Paul carry out evangelism, they're part of that evangelism. Now certainly they should be doing it in their own city too. But you're going to notice that they're actually part of this evangelistic process. He says, For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. What was the fruit he was desiring? He wanted to convert people. And he says that this was going to abound to their account. They actually had a part in the evangelism taking place through Paul. He says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of, of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, Notice this, an odor of a sweet smell. It's the idea of a sacrifice, which he then says, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Congregations are to be involved in evangelism, but so are the individuals, right? We actually notice in 2 Corinthians 11:8 where Paul says, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. Is the congregation you're attending, are they carrying out evangelism 
both congregationally, both individually, and is it in alignment with the Scriptures? Are they supporting those groups uh, that are overseen, for example, by the church, right? As a, as a congregation, I wouldn't try to evangelize uh, in unscriptural ways. I'm trying to think of somebody off the top of my hands. Nothing pops into my mind. But I'm going to make sure that however it is I'm evangelizing, I'm going to be doing it in alignment with the Scriptures. You need to make sure that the church is evangelizing in alignment with the Scriptures. Well, let me, here, let me give you this. I'm not going to go out with... I'm not going to, if my next-door neighbor was a Baptist minister, which he's not, uh, and he said, hey, I'm going to go out and evangelize. Do you want to come? And I said, well, you know, I, I teach a different gospel than you do. And he would say, well, how about this? How about, how about we leave off the stuff that you and I disagree with and we just go out and talk about Jesus? Well, guys, that's, that's not what it is to preach Jesus. To preach Jesus is to actually preach the gospel and to have people understand how to become a Christian, right? So I'm not going to be involved in so-called evangelistic works that are not in alignment with the Scriptures. What about edification? Well, is the congregation that you're looking at or where you attend, are they involved in edification? Now, this can occur in a couple different ways. It certainly occurs individually, but it also occurs congregationally. Let me mention individually. Ephesians 4.16, and let me help you out as we go here. Each person within the congregation is necessary to edify the congregation. They do that through their individual activities. Uh, and within congregations, we know that we always have people who are better in other fields than other people. And that's one of the ways we edify the congregation. We, we strengthen the congregation through the individual things that we can do. Ephesians 4.16 says, "...from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted, by that which every joint supplieth, right? Imagine my finger. Imagine if I only had one joint. Well, I don't. I actually have two, and each joint supplies something to the finger. Each joint within the congregation, each Christian, adds something, supplies something to the congregation, right? He goes on. Fit joint, fitly joined together and com compacted by that which... Every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of each part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Individually, we edify the congregation, but it is uh, of itself or the body, and it's done in love. It's done for the love of the body. Now, we also do it congregationally. Notice 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let me pause for a minute. In Corinth, they were allowing the miraculous gifts that they had possessed there in the first century, they were allowing those things to make havoc of the church, right? Paul literally says if somebody were to come in here, they'd think you were crazy. And notice what it actually was doing as we continue to read. Hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Right? The people there in Corinth within the congregation were actually allowing the first century miraculous gifts to interfere with their edification during worship. Now, another thing we need to ask, and this is really a big one. This will, this will cover a lot of it, but I have to cover it as a general topic. Is the church that you're either attending or that you're looking at attending, is it preaching the truth, right? 
Five acts of worship, they don't mean anything. If I get to the building and I find out, yeah, they've got on the website, they do the five acts of worship, but I find them misteaching or they're teaching error on the Holy Spirit. They're teaching error on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They're preaching premillennialism from the pulpit or any other doctrinal matter, right? Last time I traveled to Florida, I, I contacted uh, three congregations. I sent each of them uh, a number of questions. Do you teach? And I listed them all. Uh, I believe by memory I had one congregation and only one congregation contact me back. It might have been two. I had two of them contact me back. Based on the answers they gave me, I then narrowed it down to one congregation out of the three. They all did the five acts of worship, but I had to go a little bit deeper. Then I contacted and spoke with on the phone the minister at the one congregation. And lo and behold, how did I find the congregation that I was going to attend? Right? Because you want to attend a faithful congregation. Well, I started off by looking at how they worshiped, but then I followed up with, what do you teach? And then I followed up with a phone call. The congregation that didn't email me back, you know why they didn't email me back? I know without even talking to them, it's because they were unfaithful. Did they do the five acts of worship? Yep. <clears throat> but the very fact they didn't contact me, and this I gave them a couple of weeks in advance, the fact that they didn't even contact me back lets me know right off the bat. So, is the church preaching and teaching the truth? Now, here's the hard part. You're going to have to do some serious study. And if you're a new Christian, you're really going to have to study. I'm going to go over to 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. <clears throat> we can see the emphasis placed on the Word here, Timothy being told to preach the Word, and told why. Preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Why are you telling me this, Paul? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There are congregations that are not enduring sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heed to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. They may have the five acts of worship, uh, but they may have turned their ears away from the truth. So you need to find out, are they preaching and teaching the truth? That's going to take some serious work. It may take multiple visits to a congregation to find out if indeed they are faithful. Ask yourself this, are they enforcing discipline? Okay, we enforce discipline a number of ways. I'm going to start off, we, certainly we do this individually. And we're going to talk a little bit about individuals here in a few minutes. But let's put it back into the congregational setting, but then also address the individuals within the congregation. Is a congregational faithful? Well, do they enforce discipline? And not only does the church enforce discipline, because the church as a group may enforce discipline, but they may have two individuals or some individuals that will not enforce discipline. Are they then faithful? Well, that's important. How do we, what is the re requirement for individuals and discipline? Well, I'm going to go over to Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, <clears throat> Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. All right, here we have individual responsibility being carried out for discipline, and when it and if it does not get carried out the way it's supposed to, it then becomes a church 
matter. So you've got both of them in this passage. So let's get back to the congregation. If a congregation's not carrying out church discipline, they're not faithful. Even if they do the five acts of worship, even if they're teaching scripturally correct on everything else but discipline, if they're not carrying out discipline, they are not faithful. Now, if the church as a body has agreed to carry out discipline, but you have one or two members in the congregation who will not carry out discipline, they are not faithful. All right, let's get back to the church. We've already addressed both of them, but let's look at publicly here. There certainly has to be a public response. We've already seen it in Matthew 18, 17, where it says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. The church has a responsibility to publicly enforce discipline. There's a public response. Matter of fact, we saw that back in 2 Timothy 4, 2, right? It said, he says, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. What does this preaching consist of? He says, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering, and most important, and doctrine, right? Preaching includes more than just uh, your, your fun time, good time sermons, right? It includes reproving and rebuking and exhorting, right? This, this is discipline that can be taking place during preaching. Now, many don't like public rebukes. You start to rebuke somebody from the pulpit, a lot of people right off the bat are going to get offended, right? Is church discipline necessary, and is it sometimes carried out from the pulpit? Yes, it is. If a man refuses to address from the pulpit, he may, he may in fact be sinning. Remember, we already saw up here in Matthew 18, 17, where it says, but if he neglect to hear the church. Let me give an example. How is it then that if, uh, if we have an individual, let's say that they have been unfaithful for two years, uh, we have addressed them, we've tried to get them to come back, and you know, two years ago we finally said, listen, we're going to withdraw from you for being unfaithful. You know, I haven't spoke to them now for a couple of years, and all of a sudden I see the gentleman come in and he sits down at the pulpit. Now I'm not going to call his name out from the pulpit the first time he shows up, right? I'm going to go over and talk to him about uh, the fact that he's been gone for two years, uh, has he repented of that? Does he, does he want to come up and make a public conf uh, confession to the church here of the fact that he acknowledges that he has sinned? Uh, certainly because it was, it was a publicly known matter that he'd been unfaithful for two years or whatever, um, it should also be publicly known that he's repented of it. Right? We give him that opportunity out of love. That's how you treat people. But what if he says, no, I'm not going to repent of it publicly? Uh, I don't think I did anything wrong. Yeah, I was gone for two years, but I'm not repenting of it. Let's use another example, right? Somebody uh, was caught fornicating, uh, and, and they said, listen, I don't actually think that, that that's really that bad. I think the Bible's kind of outdated. I'm not repenting of that, right? Well, guess what? If they think for a second they can sit within the pews, within the congregation, and they're not going to be addressed, they have a problem. They need to be rebuked for that. That's what preaching includes, both exhorting and rebuking. 2 Timothy 5.20, Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Here you've got a congregation, and it may be a faithful congregation, and all of a sudden we've got someone who's come back, and they're unfaithful, but attending a faithful congregation. A faithful congregation is going to make it known to them that they're in sin, and that if they die in that situation, they're not going to go to heaven. That's not done to be mean. That is done to show love. Another question, <clears throat> do they enforce discipline? Now, this is going to have to go a little bit further. We've already covered it 
in Matthew 18, 17, right? Let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Do they withdraw when necessary? I'm not, I'm not talking about shooting from the hip. Uh, somebody says something that, that kind of upsets you. You say, you know what? I'm withdrawing from you, right? That's not how it works. <clears throat> but do they withdraw when necessary? Have you gone through the steps of dealing with the individual, and when they will not correct and repent, do they withdraw? If a congregation will not withdraw from an unfaithful individual, they're not faithful. If individuals within a congregation will not withdraw, even though the rest of the congregation has, they're not faithful. And I know of a congregation where this took place, where a church uh, had attempted and had attempted to get someone to come back to be faithful. They would not. The church enforced discipline. All of the church was to withdraw from the individual, but it just happened the guy's best friend also went there and he said, I'm not going to withdraw from him. I'm not going to withdraw from him. Well, guess what? Again, you got a congregation trying to be 100% faithful and you got one guy who's not, he's not faithful. Can you have a faithful congregation with an unfaithful member? Yeah, you can. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, you'll find you can have a bunch of them in the uh, audience. It's going to cause a problem, but it happens. How about the local organization of the church? I shouldn't even have to speak on this, but I will. I'm probably going to go a little long here. What about the local organization, right? Well, you begin to look at the makeup of the church. The church, if it is scripturally organized, will have elders and deacons if they have men who are qualified and if those men who are qualified desire the position. Listen to Acts 20:17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. That was a church that was scripturally organized. They had men that met the qualifications and desired the position of a bishop or an elder, and so therefore they had elders. If they do not have men who are qualified, or they do not have men who are qualified and seek the position, then they are without elders and deacons until they have men who are qualified. Notice Acts 14.23. <clears throat> and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Here you had congregations that for a time did not have elders and deacons. And so they had to go and they had to address that. Now certainly the men who were ordained, uh, the men who became the elders there at the congregation, they met the criteria for an elder. So that's something you need to ask when you begin to look at a congregation. Are the, are the elders scripturally qualified? Now, there is no congregation anywhere that is faithful that should be upset if you are a new member, or let's say you have just begin to attend the congregation, and you ask, what are the qualifications of the men who are elders at this building? You have the right to ask that, especially if you're going to become a member of that... If you're going to join yourself to a congregation, you better be asking, are the men that are overseeing the congregation, are they qualified? I can't imagine any faithful elder being upset that you were asking about the qualifications of his being an elder. You begin to ask him about his, his uh, marriage, his stance on alcohol, his stance... You should be able to ask an elder anything you want, and he ought to be able to answer that. And he ought to be able to answer it with the Scriptures. Right? What about their ministers? Do they have scriptural ministers? Well, that's a good question. And again, it's going to take a lot of study because you oftentimes cannot tell simply by attending their congregation once or twice. You might get a very good idea based on their style of preaching, based on 
uh, how they use Scripture or how they do not use Scripture. You might get a good idea based on what version of Bible they're using. Certainly, uh, if I show up to a congregation and they're reading out of the living uh, or the message or something like that, I, mean, I paraphrase them, <laughs> certainly the guy's got serious issues. But is their minister a qualified minister, right? First start off with, uh, what, what are they even calling? I have had people tell me they were members of the Church of Christ and then refer to me as a pastor. I'm not a pastor. Uh, I'm, not an, I'm not an elder. I'm not a bishop. I'm not an overseer. I don't meet the qualifications to be an, an elder or a pastor. The majority of the world uses this wrong. They call their minister a pastor. A pastor is an elder, is a bishop, is an overseer. Right? And so for him to be a pastor, now an elder can be a pastor if he meets all the qualifications of an elder, uh, and he may also be their minister, or he may speak sometimes, and you could call him pastor because he's an elder or a bishop, but you don't call a minister pastor. number of times I've had people tell me they were members of the churches of Christ and yet refer to their minister as a pastor. Big warning sign as you're looking for a faithful congregation. Right? Let's go back real quick to the qualifications for a pastor or an elder. Because remember I told you, no, no elder should be upset if you come and ask about his qualifications. Notice in Titus 1, 5 through 9. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. He ought to be able to tell you from, from the Scriptures why he is qualified to be an elder. And again, why did this all come up? Well, we talked about the congregation, uh, whether they are scripturally organized or not scripturally organized, but we also need to make sure, are they even using the correct word for their minister and not calling him a pastor? We just looked at the qualifications for pastor. This next point I shouldn't have to bring up. Sadly, I do for anybody who is watching this who is not a member of the Church of Christ. Uh, but it's also necessary for those who are members of the Church of Christ, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The congregation that you would attend to determine whether or not they're faithful, we've already said it, do they have ministers that are qualified? Well, one of the qualifications is, is their minister a male? What I mean is, is they do not have a female minister. Right? Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 12-15. Paul tells Timothy, But I suffer not a woman to teach. If you're a minister, you're teaching from the pulpit. Uh, if you're teaching in a Bible class, uh, you're not authorized to do that if you're a female. right? You're not authorized in any organized setting of the church to be leading in any capacity. But I suffer not a woman to teach, notice this, nor to usurp the authority over the man. To usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. Why is that, Paul? I mean, are you some type of a male chauvinist pig? Well, no, he goes on. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. 
Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity, love, and holiness with sobriety. Now, a lot of people would have just heard me say that. They heard me read it. And if you're not a member of the Church of Christ and you've never studied this, you probably got real angry. Uh, Paul teaches by inspiration, he does not authorize or allow or tolerate a woman to teach or in any way usurp the authority over the man. Now, we're talking within a church setting. We're talking within a church setting here. I've seen people just go insane with this. I actually saw a Christian who was teaching that a female, or that a male, sorry, out in the workforce could not have a female boss, right? He, he couldn't allow her to usurp his authority as a man, and therefore he, he couldn't have a female boss. Guys, that, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about ministers. Uh, it's talking about the leadership within the church, which is carried out by men. And a lot of people hear this and they say, it sounds to me like you guys are a bunch of male chauvinists. First of all, this doesn't have anything to do with equality. And as a matter of fact, we learn that from Paul uh, as we continue to read on there in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15. But let me start off and ask a question for anybody who really has studied their Bible. You go back to the patriarchal age prior to the law of Moses. Who led their worship? The patriarchs, right? That would be a male. That would be a male. Who led worship under the law of Moses? Well, the Levitical priests. The male Levitical priests. Who leads worship under the law of Christ? Well, the men of the congregation. As a matter of fact, we've already noticed here that the Scriptures show that elders need to be males. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Deacons have to be males. 1 Timothy 3, 12. Both of them are required to have wives. A woman cannot have a wife. <clears throat> a woman cannot have a wife. I know people say that you can today, but you cannot. Go back and look at Matthew 19, 1 through 9. Look at Matthew 5, 32. Uh, marriage is only tolerated uh, scripturally if it's a male and a female. There is no male-male marriage, no female-female uh, marriage. My point is simply this. As we begin to look at the scriptures, we find that under the patriarchal age, worship was led by males. Under the law of Moses, worship was led by males. Under the New Testament, the worship is led by males. There is a pattern distinctly shown to us in our inspired scriptures, right? Let me point, some people may be asking, well, then how in the world did we even get to the point where we have female pastors, they mean ministers, how do we even get to that point? <clears throat> well, from the very first century up until about 1950, I went back and did a little research, you'll find there are very few female ministers. As a matter of fact, in 1960s, you'll find that the average was 2.3% of ministers were females, and those were in the charismatic groups. Then in about the 1970s, we find that there is a huge explosion uh, of which women start to become ministers, or at least that's what they're called. And today, a recent study states that women comprise about 27% of ministers in what the study called mainline churches, such as the American Baptist churches, that is not the Southern Baptist, they do not allow women, but the American Baptist churches, uh, the Disciples of Christ or Christian churches, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, the United Church of Christ, the United Methodist Church, and even the Unitarian Universalist, which 
they teach whatever they want to teach. I saw one week, I'm not even making this up, they were having a sermon on cats. Uh, so no, one, no wonder that they're not trying to follow the Scriptures. And you may be saying, well, I understand some of them denominational groups. They do, they do kind of get off and they, they have allowed and tolerated women ministers. Guys, we've even got churches of Christ and Christians within the churches of Christ uh, who are supporting women as ministers. Uh, they're supporting women as elders. They're supporting women leading worship in other ways, usurping the authority of the men within the congregation. And guys, none of what those people believe or teach is supported anywhere in our scriptures uh, or by example. So I hate to even have to bring that up, but is the minister even qualified? Does, does this exhibit all that you need to look for within a congregation to find out if they're faithful? No. These are some big hitters. They'll really help you begin to narrow down whether a congregation is faithful. But you could attend a congregation uh, and their, their worship is spot on, right? They do the five acts of worship. Uh, you begin to listen to the majority of their topics uh, and you find that it seems like everything's in alignment. And then lo and behold, you find out that, that they're off on, well, maybe they're a group like the 8070 doctrine uh, guys who believe that Jesus came back in 8070 in the form of the Roman government, right? Maybe you find out after attending for three months that they're spot on on everything except marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You find out that uh, they're spot on in whatever area it is. So these are not the only things, but it will help you to find out if the congregation is faithful. What about individuals? I mean, that's a good question, right? It, it takes individuals to make up a congregation. Uh, and we even had that question asked. It was posed to me. Can a congregation be faithful but have unfaithful members? Well, before we begin to break it down, let me say this. It happens all the time. It happens more than anyone really even wants to admit. You can find faithful congregations that have people who are unfaithful. right? Just as congregations have credentials for whether or not they are faithful, individuals have credentials for whether or not they are faithful. Listen to Revelation. I'm going to go over to chapter 3, verse 4. And the reason is, is because congregations, they can actually give up their credentials and for a time they still have faithful members. Listen to Revelation 3, 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. Let me pause. What do we infer from that? Well, the majority of people within this congregation have soiled their garments, but they've got a few people there who have not. He goes on, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now you may be saying... Why in the world would you have unfaithful members uh, or have faithful members at an unfaithful congregation? Well, there could be a number of reasons why that might occur for a time. Uh, it could be that a congregation was faithful. Uh, they begin to veer off in apostasy. And you're down to a number of families within a congregation who are trying to, they're trying to right the ship, right? They're trying to bring people back. They're not going to just throw their hands up and walk away from a congregation they've, they've loved and been a part of for so many years. And their first attempt may be to try to bring the church back to faithfulness. Now, if the apostasy continues on, there's going to get to a point where they're not going to stay there. They're not going to want to be part of a congregation that is unfaithful as a whole. And you're down to just a couple of families who really, because they're so outnumbered, they don't even have a voice anymore on what's going on. Congregations, if we think about it, they go from faithful to unfaithful in stages. Uh, it can start off with the individuals within the pews, uh, or it could start off with the individuals who are actually considered the, 
kind of the, the leadership within the congregation, right? You've got, maybe you've got elders that are going off into air. They're slowly, privately, individually teaching people, and individuals are now going off into air. But you don't just wake up uh, on Sunday morning and you show up to church, and last week the church was faithful, and this week it's unfaithful, right? And so sometimes as congregations begin to work off into an apostasy, you've got a few faithful members like we have here in Sardis that are trying to right the ship. They're trying to save the church, the blood-bought church. And yet, at the same time, you can have congregations that are completely scriptural, the opposite of Sardis here, <clears throat> and they have the correct credentials, and yet you've got members that make up the body that may be, faith, that may be, that may be faithful, right? I've got an unfaithful congregation, uh, and I've got some that are faithful, but likewise, I can have uh, an, a faithful congregation with unfaithful members. Now, the question was posed, can a church be faithful, and yet 75% of the members are lukewarm? Well, let me answer it this way. That, that may take place. Um, I won't use a congregation I know well. Let me just make one up. Congregation X, Y, and Z, uh, they have a faithful minister. Uh, let's say they don't have elders at the time. There's none that are qualified, but they have a number of men. Let's say they have, let's say they have six men that show up every month for the men's meeting. Uh, so they have a faithful minister, and they have a faithful men that meet uh, once a month or whenever they meet. Both of them, both, all that group is striving to be unfaithful. And the question is, is can you have a congregation that's faithful and yet 75% of the people are unfaithful or, or are lukewarm? Well, yeah, that can happen because, let me say this, within that congregation with the faithful minister and the faithful men meeting, the lukewarm people, they're not even going to show up to the meeting anyway, so they're not going to have any influence on the decisions being made by the faithful men. And even if a lukewarm person did show up, or let's say he's completely in error and he shows up, the faithful men of the congregation are not going to allow uh, a person who's either lukewarm or completely involved in sin to influence their decisions on behalf of the congregation. So if a congregation is blessed enough to have a strong core group of faithful men and a minister who are making decisions on behalf of the congregation, you can have a faithful congregation in all the things that they do, but still have 25, 35, 55, or 75 percent of the congregation who are lukewarm or maybe even involved in sin out in their personal life, but the church as a whole, they're still faithful in everything that they do during worship. Their sermons are still scripturally accurate. Their evangelism is still in alignment with the scriptures. So can you have somebody who or can you have a congregation where the majority of the church is either lukewarm or unfaithful, but the church is still faithful? Yeah. But you could also have a congregation where, let's say, you only have a couple of, couple of strong, sound, faithful men. Uh, but if the minister is not faithful and the majority of people there are not faithful, and if those men are outnumbered in, in uh, number, oftentimes their voice is going to be discarded. So it works both ways. As a matter of fact, let's go over to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. And I want you to remember, when you go back and you look at Laodicea, who were described as lukewarm, the letter from Christ says He's literally going to spew them out of His mouth. Right Now, we, we saw with Sardis that those members there, they're, they're going to still be considered faithful. Uh, but you've got lukewarm members. Uh, they're neither hot nor cold. Uh, they need to understand that they're not in a righteous relationship with God. So congregation can be faithful 
the men that are leading the congregation can be faithful, but they could have a whole bunch of lukewarm people in the pews, uh, and those people aren't, aren't righteous. Just imagine how, how bad it sounds for Christ to want to spew you out of His mouth. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Let's not pretend that congregations sometimes don't have sin take place in them. Does that make the congregation unfaithful? Well, here, here in this example here, that this is an individual that did this. The whole congregation wasn't doing this. You could have a congregation completely faithful and have a man within the congregation or a woman within the congregation out committing fornication, out committing adultery, out robbing banks at night, right? The congregation may not even have any idea that this is going, taking place. Or they actually may know that it's taking place and they're not going to do anything about it. Let's go on. Because the church here in Corinth, they did know about it. He says, And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. They were supposed to inflict church discipline to try to save this guy's soul. If they refuse to enforce church discipline knowing what it is that he's done, they're not a faithful congregation. But if they try to carry this out exactly as Paul has stated, and they are trying to be faithful, the problem's not going to lie with them, but it's going to lie with the, the gentleman who was involved in this personally or individually. Guys, sometimes we don't even know what people in the pews are involved in. And so it's really hard for someone to say, well, is that congregation faithful when you've got people within the pews who are not faithful? Guys, sometimes it's extremely hard to know about somebody or whether or not they're even involved in sin when, one, they're not faithful in attending regularly, or two, they don't really fellowship much with the other members of the body. That alone ought to be a warning sign. That alone ought to be a warning sign to their spiritual status. But, I mean, it's possible we could have members within this congregation out committing fornication. They could be out getting drunk every week and, and doing who knows what, and we, we may never even know about it. That's completely different than congregations, and I'm aware of some, who know that members within their pews are involved in sin, and yet they, they refuse to discipline them or to withdraw from them. Congregation can be faithful and have members in the seat that are involved in sin. But a congregation can be unfaithful and have members in the seats that are involved in sin. Now, we have a, a number of other things that we could look at, but... In essence, when you boil this all down, and some of these were really tough questions that you have to get into, when you boil it all down, here's what you need to do. For the congregation, you need to take and look at the congregation and compare the congregation to the Scriptures. Are they worshiping according to the Scriptures? Are they teaching in alignment with the Scriptures? But then you have to break it down even more so because a congregation could be faithful but then you have members within the pews that are not faithful, right? They're forsaking the assembling. They're involved in a host of, of sins, right? And we're not talking about the, the guy who's trying to be faithful who occasionally sins. You need to look at the individuals and, again, compare them with the Scriptures. If you want to know if a church is faithful, a local congregation, 
Compare it with the Scriptures. You want to know if an individual is faithful? Begin to compare them with the Scriptures. And as the person had asked, do most people realize that just coming to the church building, these four walls on Sunday morning and Wednesday, doesn't make you faithful? The answer to that question is no. The majority of people don't know that. The majority of Christians don't know that. Just as the majority of actual Christians cannot tell a person how to be saved, the majority of Christians do not know that simply attending on Sunday morning and Wednesday does not make you a faithful Christian. Most of them just don't know that. That may have came across a little rough. That was not my intention. But I did try to be as straightforward as I can. And let me do the same as I draw this to a close. For anyone who is watching this who maybe is not yet a Christian, you want to know, how do I become a Christian? Go back and look at the Bible. Again, just as you're going to compare churches and individuals with the Scriptures, you also need to, con you also need to compare the, uh, the manner in which a person is telling you or a church is telling you in how to be saved. So go back and look at the conversion accounts because what they did in the Bible is the same thing that we still do today. You've got someone going out and teaching the Word. That's how faith comes, Romans 10, 17. You need to understand what's been taught to you about Jesus about His establishing the church, the one church, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, Ephesians 4, 4. You need to understand that the churches of Christ are all in unity. You need to have an understanding of who Jesus was, the fact that He was a Messiah, and why He came and shed His blood for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. And if you won't do those things, you're going to die in your sins, John 8, 24. With an understanding of sin and the consequence of sin, you'll be willing to repent of your sins as Jesus commands, Luke 13, 3 and 5. You'll be willing to confess Christ with your mouth, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And you will be willing, you'll be begging to be immersed in water for the remission of your sins as Jesus has commanded in Mark 16, 16. And as Peter has explained the purpose of for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. When you do that, you don't join the church of Christ, you are added to the church by the Lord Himself, Acts 2, verse 47. Then comes the hard part, you have to remain faithful. Uh, Revelation 2, 10, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. That's how you become a Christian. Now, if you've watched this and you've never heard this before, please contact us via email. We'd love to study with you or, or find a local congregation that you can study with. If you are a Christian, Again, go back and look at the congregation you're attending. Ask yourself if they're in alignment with the Scriptures. Do the same for yourself as a Christian. And at all times, just because you love the fellow Christians within your congregation, ask yourself, are they also in alignment with the Scriptures? I hope tonight's study has been of benefit to you.